You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Start a chain reaction in the water, converting it all to gas, letting all the ships from all the oceans drop down to the bottom. It will not blow out the bottom of the sea and let all the water run down the hole. It will not destroy gravity. I am not an atomic playboy. I am not an atomic playboy. I am not an atomic playboy. Hey, Sonny, I am excited about this week's episode of the Grown Up Rock podcast. I got to interview somebody that I've always wanted to interview. I've dug his work for a long time, and I'm super excited about it. What do you think? Uh, that's cool. Who'd you interview? I interviewed Stephen Bruce Schneider. You know who that is, buddy? <laughs> who the hell is Stephen Bruce Schneider? You have no clue who Stephen Bruce Schneider is? Come on, man. Mm, no. Is he your neighbor? <laughs> no Stephen Bruce Schneider is better known as Mr. Steve Stevens oh yeah love that dude dude this guy has done a lot of super cool stuff not only is the guitar player for Billy Idol and has been for many many years I mean he was the key writing partner in on Rebel Yell and all that great stuff he's done amazing things like played with Michael Jackson played on the Top Gun soundtrack I mean he's done tons of cool stuff so really really excited about this interview we talked about a lot of stuff we cover a lot of territory in this interview and we are going to get into that but we got to take care of a little business first Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right, Growing Ups of the Week, we have Melodic Dirt, Rob Alanese, Alan Tate, David Cathy, Steve Wright. Classic Rock Drops Podcast, Eladio, Tom Dust, Jason Kearney, Save Rock and Metal, Bill Algie, Kristen Kivo, Janet Eck, Jay Sabluski, Nighthawk, Bella Lowe's 1966, Podcast Rock City, Mark Winder 8, Ogata, Shuana Lee, Digital Killed, Weris Kneebone, which is a Twitter handle, Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, Arrowhead, Decibel Geek, Jake Campbell, Feedy and Claw, which is a Twitter handle, DJ Skyfall69, Twinkie the Kid, which I thought was a cool Twitter handle, and then uh, EZMT Radio Podcast. So these are all the folks that shared us on Facebook, retweeted on Twitter, and uh, I got a bunch of uh, like texts and a couple of things on Facebook that they really liked the Prince episode. So I was so happy to hear that people liked the Prince episode because I'm a huge fan and it was 
really cool to do. Yeah, it was definitely fun doing that episode because it was out of our comfort zone a little bit, but it's uh, an artist that both of us appreciate a lot and really love. So it was definitely fun to do something out of the norm for this podcast. And guess what, Sonny? What's up? We've got three new reviews on iTunes. How cool is that? I think those are just to shut you up so you don't keep crying about it. Probably. But keep in mind that these will shut me up this week, but I'm going to continue to cry about it unless we continue to get reviews. So know that that's going to happen. But anyway, let me, let, me <laughs> read, let me read these reviews. First one is from at 77 Nighthawk, which is a Twitter handle. That's our friend David Cathy. Great podcast. Grown Up Rock is a very good and entertaining podcast. Stephen and Hollywood mesh together real well. Their shows are entertaining as well as informative in the rock world. They have great interviews with the players, movers, and shakers of rock. This is one of my go-to podcasts each week. And another great interview with Paul Dean of Loverboy. I love them and still listen as of today. So if you have never listened to them, you need to treat your ears and give them a listen, and I'm sure you will like them as I do. Guys, keep up the good work and see you in Nashville at Rockin' Pod 2. David Cathy, a.k.a. 77 Nighthawk. Yeah, I dig it. He dug the Paul Dean episode. That's very cool. All right, this is one of my favorites. Love Growing Up Rock. That's the title, and it's by Pimpin' Ho. I mean, that is an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Prince song. <laughs> five, five stars. Great host plus great content equals a really great show. Check out all the episodes, new and old. It's awesome to get introduced to new music from artists I grew up with, as well as today's up-and-coming artists. And I can sleep better now knowing that I didn't hurt Stephen Michael's feelings. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's true my feelings are not hurt with this five-star review i appreciate it last one hard and heavy five-star review by the tin man hashtag number one what a fun time the hosts have diving deep into all things hard rock and metal it's a new show but i liked it and will continue to listen i want to support all the folks doing great work keeping this music alive and fresh that's what it's all about for us sonny right that's right awesome so i love it keep the reviews coming you can always leave us a five-star review at itunes that's great but if you're not an apple user and you just want a simple way to leave us a review all you got to do is go to facebook and leave us a review at growing up rock on our facebook page and we love to interact with people on that facebook page so leave us comment tell us whatever you like what you don't like it's all good there can also find out more information about the Rock and Pod 2 Expo coming up in August. We really need your help. So here's how you can do it.
It's that time again. The second annual Rockin' Pod Expo is taking place on August 25th at the Nashville Palace in Nashville, Tennessee. Rockin' Pod is a day-long expo bringing together over 20 different podcasts from all over North America, recording content throughout the day. We will also be conducting interviews with some of the musicians and industry folks that will be in attendance. There will be various artists and record producer appearances, some taking pictures and signing autographs, informative artist and podcaster discussion panels, and you'll be able to buy some cool stuff from the record and memorabilia vendors. We believe in podcasting platform and we believe that rock and roll is alive and well. We created the Growing Up Rock podcast because we love talking music and we want to share that love of music with people all around the world. The Rock and Pod is a celebration of podcast and music fans from all around the world. The Grown Up Rock podcast is proud to be one of the many participating podcasts in this year's expo. We will be offering up many different perks for those interested in donating to help fund the expo. If you like podcasts and you want to help contribute to this amazing gathering, please go to Nashville Rock, the letter N, podexpo.com for information, then click on the GoFundMe link and make a donation in the Growing Up Rock name. Or just go to our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and click on the post pinned to the top of the page for Rock and Pod perks. Make sure you donate in the name of the Growing Up Rock podcast. Later! All right, so this week, Steve Stevens was kind enough to lend me his time and give us a great interview. We had all kinds of territory to cover for Steve this week. Sonny, what's your experience with Steve Stevens and his music? I love a lot of the stuff that he's been in. The one thing that always comes top of mind with Steve Stevens and uh, the Billy Idol connection I remember in the 80s, especially on MTV, hearing a bunch of synthesizers, right? Everything from Flock of Seagulls to Depeche Mode to whatever. And then you heard a lot of bands that had heavy guitarists, right? All the metal bands that were out there. Yeah. But there wasn't very many that combined both. And that's what I think combining synthesizers and heavy guitar riffs, Steve Stevens was the first guy I heard kind of do that. Yeah, agreed. I mean, some of my earliest uh, growing up rock stories, I can remember going to this bottle club and it opened like it. This was when I was really young. I mean, I probably just had turned 21 or I, I may not have even been 21 at the time. But I remember going to this little bottle club in town and a bottle club is something that basically opens up when all the other bars shut down. So it opened up at like I want to say it opened up like at 11.30 or midnight at night, and it was open till like 4 in the morning. And they always had this cover band, and the cover band, they didn't play that much great rock and roll. It was all more like modern English and stuff like that, like, you know, I'll Stop the World and Melt With You and things like that because, you know, it was the 80s. It was the early 80s at that. But one of the songs that I remember them playing is... They played Rebel Yell, and I was a huge fan from the get-go of that. Now, mind you, I don't think they played the intro part right. (laughs) 
and it was one of the things that always bothered me. In fact, I'm probably 100% sure they didn't play the guitar intro right, part right. But anyway, it was still good. It was about my only dose of reasonable rock and roll from that band. But I had great times and hanging out with friends and stuff like that. So that was one of the things that kind of stuck out in my mind as far as a grown up rock story that goes along with Billy Idol and that earlier music for sure. And then he just got into so many things that I loved. I mean, his work with Vince Neil on the Exposed record, there was a lot of good music on that. The Atomic Playboys record, I was a big fan of. So really enjoyed that. And then, you know, he co-wrote so much of Rebel Yell. He wrote and co-wrote so much of that uh, Rebel Yell record. And that record, man, start to finish, that record is really good. Yeah, I thought that, uh, at least my opinion of Steve Stevens is, you know, you had those guitar heroes at that time in that, you know, in that span of, let's say, 80 to 90. There was tons of guitar heroes, some of them with super brash personalities, some that would never get along with their singer and probably always at odds. And then Steve Stevens was kind of the guy behind the guy, but then fame and guitar hero-ness kind of found him instead of him being brash and looking for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. And you're 100% right. And we really talk about all this kind of stuff. We talk about his relationship with Billy. We talk about Michael Jackson. We talk about all kinds of things. And he's got some great stories and very humble dude. And just, I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation with him. I'm super psyched because he's coming. Well, Billy Idol and Steve are coming to Atlanta in about a week and a half, two weeks. So I'm going to go see the show. Oh, that's cool. And that'll be my first time actually seeing them. So I'm super psyched about that. (laughs) He uh, is kind enough to pick out three tunes covering some of his work to play for us. So we play... um, some stuff off the Vince Neil record, some stuff off uh, the Atomic Playboys record, and a Billy Idol, of course. You know, I asked him to pick some stuff that he didn't feel like get that much love. So we picked some deeper tracks as we like to do here, and I enjoy that as well. Well, that's cool. Let's get to it because I haven't heard this interview yet. Yeah, man. Let's waste no more time. Let's get into this Steve Stevens interview. Enjoy, and we will see you guys next week. Later. Later. Hey, this is Steve Stevens. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Steven in Hollywood. Crank it up. Let's get into this. Steve Stevens, welcome to the show. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us. My pleasure. So let me jump right into this. Were your parents musicians? Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. Actually, no one in my family in any generation or anything was a musician. But my dad was a a great music lover. He had a great record collection and and actually, you know, built his own stereo. And uh, so at one point, I must have been about seven and a half years old, he he went and got a uh, a Burl Ives guitar music book and uh, instrument. I think he paid about 15 bucks for it. And he brought it home, and he thought – he didn't bring it home for me. He thought, eh, you know, he'll learn how to play a couple of these, you know, traditional folk songs. And little by little, you know, the guitar ended up in my room, and 
And, um, you know, my brother of five years senior to me had a lot of friends that played guitar. And one of them came over and said, you know, he's making a hell of a racket, but it's in time. He's got rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) So um, they arranged for me to, uh, you know, get some guitar lessons. And there was a famous protest singer from my neighborhood named Phil Oaks. And um, there's actually a great documentary, uh, if you go on iTunes, about him. But his sister lived, uh, you know, about a mile away, and um, she agreed to take me on as a student, uh, you know, seven and a half years old. And, and this was the height of the early folk rock, you know, renaissance. And um, so I spent uh, the next, I don't know, uh, from seven and a half till I was 13 playing uh, acoustic guitar. I didn't get an electric guitar till I was 13. So you were drawn to it then right away. I mean, was there anything in particular that drew you to it or that just happened to be what your your uh, father picked out and, and started you on? I think, you know, it was, um, it was just a way to get noticed. <laughs> Maybe I was a little kid, you know, so I wasn't really uh, into sports that much. And, um, and also I always wanted to hang out with my big brother. Okay. So, you know, by playing the guitar, you know, all my brother's friends said, oh, you know, let's take him along, you know, almost every night, you know, we grew up by the beach and guys would go out on the beach with acoustic guitars and play. Yeah. And my brother's friends, ah, bring him, you know, he can jam with us, <laughs> much to my brother's dismay. Right. Very cool. Okay. Do you play any other instruments? Do you play piano well or just strictly guitar? Guitar and bass. Yeah. You know, I. I'm a horrible piano player, but I can, you know, now with computers, you can program parts. But yeah, uh, you know, I'm the worst drummer you'll ever hear. <laughs> and what was it that kind of, you ended up eventually getting into rock and roll at some point. So what was your gateway or your introduction into rock and roll? Because as you said, you kind of came in uh, and started learning guitar around the time that the Joni Mitchells and the and the folk renaissance kind of was happening. So uh, what was it that kind of introduced you to the rock and roll? Yeah, I think just getting an electric guitar and then it opened up a Pandora's box of, uh, you know, all the uh, obviously classic rock, what we call classic rock now, you know, Hendrix and the Stones. But just at the time that I got my electric guitar was when the early English progressive rock scene was starting. And these were guitar players who played all different styles, like Steve Howe from Yes and Robert Fripp. Steve Hackett from Genesis. So when I heard this music, I went, wow, you know, they're incorporating, you know, folk. Steve Howe played some ragtime and jazz and classical. You know, I had I had taken classical guitar lessons and and it just resonated with me because they weren't just playing blues based rock anymore. You know, as much as I loved uh, Jeff Beck and Clapton. When I heard guys incorporating these other styles, it just like a light bulb went off and and I fell in love with the early English prog rock stuff and a lot of the more obscure things like, you know, Hatfield and the North bands that people didn't didn't really know in the States, Vandegraaff Generator. And we had a show, a radio show every Friday for two hours on WNEW called Things for England. And uh, and I'd hear all of these English imports and then go to a local music store and I'd have to order them uh-huh. uh, to ship from England and um and I love turning my friends on to bands they never they never even heard of, and it was like, man, this 
this shit is amazing. So, uh, so I just fell in love with that style of guitar playing. Yeah, that reminds me of sort of growing up and you sound very similar in that, you know, that was the best part about music was getting together with your friends and sharing back and forth these bands or these things that we were discovering, which really turned us on to, I mean, I turned on people to all kinds of new music and vice versa. They turned me on to all kinds of new stuff. And it was a really kind of just a discovery period of time in our life. Uh, When that was going on for you, were you in your teens that was happening around your teens or what? Yeah. As I said, you know, 13 and, and then I started to go to you know, concerts and um, one of the first big shows that me and my friends went to was uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer on the Brain Salad Surgery Tour. Nice. And then I think that same year we saw Yes do Tales from Topographic Oceans. And and uh, these were big productions. You know, these were there were no concerts on the level of those bands. You know, the, people don't realize that the guy who was the lighting designer, uh, Michael Tate for Yes, is now the you know his his company is the biggest lighting design company in the world and you know does Beyonce and all these mm-hmm. things and and ELP was the first to do the the actual proscenium lighting trust so you know it was really exciting to go to a concert and and, and just see it on a grand scale like uh, like you'd never seen before it was such an event and you grew up in uh, Brooklyn right. I grew up in Queens. I was born in Brooklyn, but okay. I grew up in in, uh, in Rockaway Beach. So you were in—I mean, you were in an ideal area for seeing just about everything and anything that would come through the states would play that area. I'm sure. So you probably saw a lot of amazing things back then. Yeah, uh, yeah. On on every level. I mean, I'd go see. You know, within within like two weeks, I'd go to an arena show at uh, Madison Square Garden, and then go to the blue note and see Ross and Roland Kirk. I remember I went with my brother who's a, you know, amazing sax player. And then we'd go see John Fahey, the folk guitar player at some church. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just music and, and live concerts was so diverse and varied, but, you know, we were all there to see great music. And, uh, you know, I think that's the, that's the one thing, you know, I give credit to, uh, my family about because, um, you know, we shared music in my family and I'd turn my dad on to something and then he'd play me something. And, and my, my folks weren't really interested in, you know, any of that Benny Goodman or, you know, like old timey shit that right. maybe they grew up with. My dad loved Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he brought home this record before ELP and it was called Moog. And he explained to me what a Moog synthesizer was. And then ELP come out with this and I was like, dad, you know, that crazy instrument, it's on this record, <laughs> you know. How big a family do you come from, Steve? Uh, just me and my brother. Okay. So when you were growing up in New York, you saw bands like Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers after he left uh, the New York Dolls. Were you a New York Dolls fan at all? Yeah. I mean, I went to, I was accepted to the high school performing arts, which was the fame school. And I auditioned for it on guitar. And then once I got in, they explained that the, you know, there's no guitar in a symphony, so you'll have to take up another instrument. And uh, I, I'd made a half-ass attempt at viola, but I was terrible. So, but there was one kid in my school who lived in Manhattan. He was kind of a hip kid. You know, his dad was a, a Broadway actor. And uh, he said, hey, have you ever been to the Mercer Arts Center? I was, 
He's like, I have no idea what that is. He's, you know, we stayed in the city in Manhattan that day. And then we went down uh, to Mercer Art Center and I saw uh, Heartbreakers. And, and it was like, that was, you know, I just went, wow, that's my education out there. You know, seeing rock and roll bands. I had already, I kind of knew that there was a scene brewing. You know, this is like after the first heyday of Max's, but there was a whole new thing coming up. And, uh, you know, with CBGBs and, and I just love the energy, you know, I mean, uh, I saw Johnny as an extension of the glam rock thing and we didn't call it punk rock, but, uh, but it was rock and roll and, and, uh, you know, it was all just, I just got off on the energy and obviously dude was charismatic as hell. And, you know, as, as we all know. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Great. Well, hey, when you were uh, when you were younger, did you uh, did you get to any shows? Were you ever the kid that was uh, maybe waiting outside backstage somewhere to try and get an autograph from your your uh, hero at any point? Were you ever into yeah. any of that? Yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, you know, you, we camp. You know, we camped out the night before for for tickets, and um, and I remember someone from the when I was in high school, someone from one of the, the music store row in, in New York was 48th street. Uh-huh. And there was, there was about eight different music stores on that one street. And my high school was two blocks away and my music classes were in the morning. So I'd leave for lunch and go to the music stores and I'd never return to school. That's why my grades sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but I made friends with, with these guys in the music stores because there was two uh, used guitar shops that were, had hundreds of guitars and I get to play these, you know, 59 Les Pauls and incredible guitars. And I made friends with one guy who gave me the hotel room number for Steve Howe from yes, when they were in town. Nice. And I called him. (laughs) (laughs) I said, you know, Mr. Howe, you know, I'm like a hugest fan. He's like, where'd you get my number? (laughs) Oh, I made up some, story my sister worked at the hotel he said he appreciated it but hung up so then i found out where they were staying which was the drake hotel so uh so me and my friends camped out at the hotel i never got to see him <laughs> but i was you know i do know what that that's like you know as a as a incredible fan of, of the band you know back then you know this is pre-internet and all of that stuff so sure. when a band like zeppelin or yes or genesis i guess also because they were English, they seemed so alien. And the only time you saw them was when they were on stage or, you know, they did an interview in the newspaper while we were there. Right. So it was really like spotting Bigfoot or something, you know. And we just like for that week that they'd be in New York or days. And it was just like you could almost sense that that band was in town. And, and it was, you know, it was really amazing, man. Yeah, I think I get exactly what you're saying. There was that little bit of a mystique that happened, yeah. whereas with the internet age, right, it's all over the place, so the mystique is gone a little bit. That's, uh, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. We used to, you know, we used to hang out backstage um, uh, by the buses and stuff to try to get autographs. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Things like that. So, so what were some of your earliest guitar influences? Well, as I said, you know, the early prog, Guys. Steve Howe and Hackett yeah. and those guys. Yeah. Okay. All those guys who were playing any of them who were playing styles other than just blues based rock. And and obviously, you know, Hendrix, 
who was a bit before that. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Page was just brilliant. You know, he's such an amazing arranger and his ability to always make his guitars, whether they were acoustic or electric, right. sound larger than life, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and that made an impression on me because as I entered a career where I was in the studio, I love the fact that Page wasn't relying on an engineer or a producer to get the guitar sound because I'd become frustrated with not knowing what microphones to use and what preamps and, and leaving it up to the engineer. So I thought I'm going to be a bit of a Jimmy Page and control my own guitar sound. So that was a, you know, he influenced me more than just a guitar player, but as a guy who was totally in, in control of his guitars. And um, as the kind of prog rock thing dwindled out and, and, um, and kind of had, you know, the heydays for me for prog rock are, you know, up to 74. And after that, it kind of like got stale. And, you know, obviously punk rock comes around the corner. And, and I remember the first time I heard a Sex Pistols song, it was a, I was in a cover band at a time and another band was playing God Save the Queen. And I went, what the hell is that? And I went up to the guitar player. I said, what song is that? And he said, oh, it's this new band, Sex Pistols. So I went out and got the record and and I uh, just went, wow, this this is really exciting. And it didn't matter that it didn't have technically challenging guitar solos or anything. And, and by then the Ramones were around and I kind of embraced the energy of that. To me, it was like, um, it was... Uh, Dangerous. Like, yeah, and also it reflected uh, communication breakdown. That's what it sounded like to me. It sounded like the energy of that, you know, the early Led Zeppelin and the, you know, early rock and roll. I always loved Elvis, and uh, and I thought, yeah, this is healthy, man. This is, you know, and then there were bands like XTC and The Police, and you know, it was, it was really a healthy dose of energy and youth. Yeah, no, I get exactly what you're saying. So one of your earlier bands, um, and tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, is it Fine Maribus? Oh, yeah, fine Malibus. Yeah. Uh, so you originally had a deal with this band for Island and ended up recording a record that never got released that kind of got shelved. What what kind right. of band was that? Well, that, yeah, that we didn't know. <laughs> okay, so that was probably part of the problem? Yeah, we didn't really know because we had a bit of a Van Halen energy thing, you know, and, uh, and a bit of a punk rock thing. Our bass player looked a bit like the... Paul Simonon from The Clash, and and um, we really didn't have, have an identity, but we had great ideas, and we got picked up by Island Records, and Jimmy Miller produced us, who was the uh, producer of the Rolling Stones. Wow. And, uh, and we went down to the Bahamas to record the record, but we really didn't know what we were doing. We were very uh, green about, it, about the whole thing, um, but we did we did get management from Bill Coyne, who was the manager of Kiss, and he is the one that managed Billy Idol and brought him to New York. So that group and that record that wasn't released was a real stepping stone for me to get with Billy Idol. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was kind of headed with this is is I wanted to find out more about that whole connection. So you're in this band. You guys do this record. The record gets shelved. You end up getting... I guess picked up by Bill. How does how does your band come on the radar for Bill? Um, well, we had done a bunch of showcases, and we 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 started to look for a new deal. 
and a coin picked up the band and we did a showcase at tracks. And I remember during that show, I printed up a book and cause I didn't like the idea of management telling us everything that was wrong about us, but he was, he was true. You know, he was, he was honest mm-hmm. and, and I printed up a book and the title of the book was stage guide to stage bullshit by Bill coin. <laughs> <laughs> cause he was always telling us, you know, we had to have like a, not a gimmick, but something. And I opened up the book I had it professionally printed, mind you. This was a whole thing. <laughs> Opened up the book, and, and I threw the book to him in the audience. And I think I won, I won him over by doing that. At least he said it. <laughs> and he called me. He said, that was absolutely brilliant. He said, what are your plans for the band? I said, to be honest, you know, I need to get with other guys that can write. And I think the writing's on the wall for me with this band. He said, well, we'll manage you. And help you put together a band. And we wrote, we uh, ran an ad in the Village Voice, you know, guitarist looking for everything, <laughs> you know, every instrument. Yeah. I think a week later he called me and he said, have you ever heard of Billy Idol? Um, and I knew by then Dancing With Myself was being played in all the clubs. And I knew Ready, Steady, Go. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, he's a punk rock singer from England. He said, let me send over the third Generation X record. And... Um, and uh, it wasn't what I expected at all. There was, uh, it, it, this was the first record that Keith Forsey produced with them, and I thought the record was great. It wasn't what I would typify, you know, as just punk rock. There was a lot of reggae influences and dub, you know, and and uh, he said he's, you know, he's moved to New York and he's looking for a band. And would you guys meet? And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, and so you and Billy end up together, and Billy's first record, you co-wrote a couple of songs on that first record, but then Rebel Yell, and literally, I mean, you co-wrote or wrote just about everything on Rebel Yell, am I right? Yeah, all except one song, I believe. Yeah, and so did Billy have uh, the first record already almost written? No, we rehearsed that in... uh a shitty little, uh, shitty little rehearsal room in uh, right across from the Port Authority bus station, and actually Madonna was rehearsing next to us, and it was it's pretty cool, pretty cool time. But um, the last song that was written for the first record, Billy wrote on his own, which was White Wedding, and we knew when it came to the second record that was the starting point, the quality of music, and okay, and and even stylistically. White Wedding was the jump off point. We've got to we've got to start with that quality. And um, and I think we just you know, we just we kind of gotten to know each other, gotten to know what it would take, what kind of music it would take to uh, to break through. And um, and also the the combination of Rebel Yell was was recorded in Electric Lady Studios, which was Jimi Hendrix's room. And for a guitar player, you know, that was most inspiring thing and i brought in i kept complaining that the uh, guitars didn't sound big enough mm-hmm. and we i complained to management i said i need a guitar engineer a guy who really knows guitars and they brought in dave whitman who was the engineer for all of the kiss records and he had done uh, song remains the same and even mahavishnu orchestra uh, he knew guitars and he came into the studio and heard me play, put up the mics and whatever, ever wizardry he did. And I went, that's what I want to sound like, you know, and it was so inspiring. Great studio, great engineer. 
Billy Idol and great producer Keith Forsey. And, and uh, you know, it was just the right combination of, of elements. Yeah, it's all about timing, right place, the right time, the right people involved, and magic happens. So put us in a room at a Steve Stevens, Billy Idol writing session. How, how, how exactly does that work? Do you bring music uh, to Billy and he writes melodies and lyrics or uh, I guess Billy plays a little bit of guitar. Does he, you know, play you something on a guitar or does he hum something or how, how do you guys write? Yeah, there really is no rules. You know, I, I wish I could say, yeah, you know, step one, step two, step it, every song was always different, mm-hmm. but there was definitely something in the air because as an example, Eyes Without a Face, I was living in my parents' basement, and I had a shitty little radio, and the only station that would come in was the oldie station, CBS, and they would play like doo-wop and things like that, and I remember listening, and, and I, there was a Frankie Valley song on, and I kind of nicked the chords, and they're very standard for 50s doo-wop, but I altered them by not playing... I'm not going to get too technical, but not playing the standard chord. I made every chord a major seventh and a minor seventh. Mm-hmm. And I got on the subway, and we were we were rehearsing songs in part of our writing. And I, I said to Billy, you know, I started playing this. And I said, what do you think about something like this? And he had a big legal ledger pad of all lyrics that he had been writing. And he, he said, I think I got something for that. And it just fit tongue and groove you know, just perfectly. So, you know, sometimes it's just putting two things together. Sometimes Billy would come in with a complete song like Sweet 16 or Catch My Fall or something. And and it was just a matter of applying the right guitar sounds and things to it. But there really were no rules. Do you remember the first time you heard a song on the radio that you co-wrote or performed on? And Yeah, that probably was uh, White Wedding, I think, if, yeah. if I remember. Directly, yeah. Uh-huh. How how did that make you feel? I was so proud of it because Billy Idol records really sounded different than other records at that time, and I I, I really credit Keith Forsey with that. Now Keith, our producer, started with Giorgio Moroder with Donna Summers, and those were sonically miles ahead of the other records. the 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 amount of bottom end and bass was comparable to records now. So Keith was always, he was a drummer. So groove had to be impeccable on Billy Idol records. And also the bass had to be spot on. And I I think that's what made our records stand out from the other rock records, you know? Yeah. I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's do something fun here. Can you pick a song off a rebel yell to play? Maybe you feel like doesn't get enough love. Daytime drama would be it, which we actually play now. (laughs) But yeah, that was always one of my favorite songs on that record.
Daytime drama, that's a great song, and you're right, that one doesn't get played a lot. Probably one of my favorite songs because uh, I'm pretty much uh, a definite rocker, so pretty much one of my favorite songs on that record I love is uh, Blue Highway. Do you guys play that live these days? Every night we play that. You know, I get to do an extended guitar solo in that, and I throw in a bit of Top Gun anthem <laughs> in that, so that's a... That's become a perennial. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm 100% looking forward to that because you guys are going to be playing my neck of the woods in about a two-week period. So Right, great. I'm psyched about that. So very cool. Awesome. So nowadays, does Billy just basically, you guys' partnership has been obviously very long ongoing. And so uh, does he, are you basically the band director? So every time it's time for a tour or record, Billy says, Hey, you know, go put the guys together that you want to have play on this record or have play on the road. What's, I mean, what's your position with that? Yeah. I mean, we have this, we've had the same band now for at least six or seven years. Once our drummer, Eric Aldinas joined. So, you know, we, we, our bass player has been with us. Wow. 20 years, I think now, wow. Steve McGrath. 
So I'll go. Usually it's just one day to uh, and it's usually a, a technical day so that Billy doesn't have to sit around, you know, waiting for drum sounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he really enjoys coming into rehearsal. It's it's uh, it's usually just one day without him. And then he's in and working with us. And But, yeah, I can, you know, I'm, I'm the musical director, but that just means that I just, you know, do what I do. <laughs> I guess I've always done it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you've had such a diverse career over the past 35 years. I mean, Billy Idol, obviously, that's what a lot of people know you from. uh, But that's really only kind of one side of the many different things that I've come to know you for and have looked into. Obviously, the big thing or one of the very big things, and and it's so cool that you got to do this, but I got to hear the story, which is Michael Jackson. So you get called in to do the solo on Dirty Diana. Can you tell us any stories about that whole thing and the video and stuff like that? Yeah, I had just been signed to Warner Brothers as a solo artist. And Quincy Jones was friends with Ted Templeman. That's actually how Eddie Van Halen ended up on Beat It, because Ted was the head of A&R and also the producer of Van Halen. So Ted told me, because I asked him, you know, uh, actually... I'll backtrack. So Quincy calls Ted and says, you know, they're working on the follow-up to uh, to Thriller. And we got a rock track. We need a rock guitar player. Who would you suggest? And Ted uh, said, you, you should call Steve Stevens. You know, we just signed him to the label. Because the last thing they wanted was, a you know, a uh, Eddie Van Halen clone. or You know, they, they wanted somebody to come in with their own. Yeah, somebody fresh. So Quincy calls me, and uh, I think I hung up the first time because (laughs) it had been a late night, and, you know, I thought somebody was messing with me. So he calls back and says, no, I got your number from Ted Templeman. He suggested, you know, you guest on the the new Michael Jackson record. So I arranged to come out to L.A. I was still living in New York, and, um, and, you know, my first thought was, oh, I'm going to go in the studio. There'll be some huge entourage and all, you know. And actually, it was absolute opposite. It was just myself, Quincy, Michael, and an engineer. And this was exactly the same way that I worked with Billy Idol, with Keith Forsey. Mm-hmm. So we, um, they played me the track, which was probably about 10 minutes long at that point. And Michael suggested certain melody lines and certain things that he was hearing. And, uh, and I think we nailed them within, within an hour or so. And then they said, do whatever you want, you know, do, you know, we'll give you some tracks and play what you feel. And, uh, and that's, you know, the session was only about two hours long and, you know, then they edited the track down and that's what people hear now. Yeah. Uh, he was cool and, uh, fairly easy to work with. It sounds like super easy. I mean, we spent the whole day together doing the video and, uh, you know, he was getting ready. He was already planning his tour and a lot of people in his organization weren't used to his vision of a tour, which was like a rock tour. He had seen Queen. Mm-hmm. He had seen Van Halen. He'd even seen Motley Crue. And he was asking me about sound companies and lighting companies. And I suggested uh, some of the companies that we worked with, Billy Idol. And um, it, it was an amazing experience, you know. Now, that was that because that, uh, the video is kind of a concert feel video. Was that shot um at just a warehouse or was it an actual concert where they do the song two or three times in concert and take the best parts it was shot on a soundstage okay 
And then some of the other things that you've done, uh, Top Gun Anthem. So you recorded that with Harold Faltemeyer. Did you guys meet doing the Whiplash Smile recordings? That's a, exactly, yeah. Harold came in to do, uh, to do keyboards. As I mentioned, he, uh, he worked with Keith Forsey in, back in the Donna Summers days. And, and as an aside, you know, he said, oh, you know, I'm working on this movie, uh, Top Gun. And <laughs> so what's Top Gun? Oh, it's Tom Cruise movie. And I think the only thing I knew was Risky Business. And so he, uh, this is the days of VHS tapes. He puts in a VHS tape and shows me some of the, uh, footage and at that time you know the aerial footage was revolutionary now you look at it and go ah you know we're so used to cgi and right, stuff yeah. so, um but i said yeah i'd love to do it and uh, he said great you know we'll put up the multi-track at the end of the day of doing uh you know our, our billy idol stuff and so what was great about it is i was already set up you know i already had my gear set up and and um we were able to capture really you know it's a really good guitar sound on that and and I was all already playing at the peak of my abilities because we were in the midst of recording idle stuff. So uh, this just, you know, slotted in perfectly. Yeah. And help me out. Was it this that you won the Grammy for or something else? Yeah, we won a Grammy for it. I kept laughing because Harold would call me up. Ah, we got nominated for a Grammy. We're going to win. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then uh, I wasn't even going to go to the Grammys that year, but Billy Idol uh, was booked to perform on it. So uh, we did To Be a Lover on that show. So, you know, I just, Harold said, well, come in the afternoon. That's when they give out this, you know, they announce this Grammy. And I, was, I wasn't even thinking of winning or anything. And, and uh, lo and behold, we did. And Harold just said, I told you we could win. You know, that's <laughs> it was awesome. really an amazing day, you know, just an amazing day. Yeah. Now, do you get do you get your own statue when when something like that happens? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Very cool. All right. So now to bounce around a little bit, you're doing so well. Everything's going pretty well, and everything is good with Idol. You're on the charts. You're hitting songs, selling millions of albums, and then in '87 you depart for six years. <laughs> Can you fill in that gap for us? What went down? Was it something, uh, or you just decided to take a break and and do some some things on your own? Yeah, pretty much. You know, Billy decided to move to Los Angeles. I wanted to stay in New York, so that was an issue. Mm-hmm. Also, it was never my intention. Now, Whiplash Smile was a follow up to Rebel Yell, and you know, we had spent almost ten months on the road with this kick ass band. Right. Tommy Price is our drummer. Same guy from from uh you know from rebel yell and then uh, the decision was made to use drum machines and lots of synths and things and and i thought there wasn't a, even enough balance of technology and real musicians and it was really frustrating for me i really just thought mm, you know we're missing something here although the tunes were good i would have preferred to have had uh, you know a bass player at least a bass player and drummer and it kind of soured me a little bit. And, sure. uh, of course, you know, record companies come calling on me and throwing lots of money at me. Yeah. And they start feeding your ego that you can make your own record. Da, 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 all You're the kind. real talent, kid. <laughs> yeah, you know, all that kind of shit. Yeah. And, uh, you know. But it was never, you know, when I made the decision to leave, 
you know, I sat down with Billy and I said, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and, you know, maybe down the line we'll work together again. But he understood and it wasn't, it was never any maliciousness or animosity. Sure. We never, never said anything derogatory about each other in the press or anything. And, and actually after I left the band, I came, uh, flew to LA for his, uh, baby shower. And then when he had his accident, I immediately called him and offered to come out to LA. And so we remained friends. And I think when the time was right, when he called me to come back and work, there was no bad blood that we hadn't said anything to damage that relationship. Yeah. I think that's a lesson to be learned too. I mean, I think that's apparent. Obviously you guys have a special relationship, which is really cool. Yeah. And I actually, because the Charmed Life record was a was a return to using real drums and bass on it. And uh, had I had known that was the direction that Billy and Keith were looking to go into, maybe I wouldn't have left, but I thought maybe they were really going into this kind of drum machine world. And um, so uh, I was happy to hear Charmed Life, and I thought it was a great record. Yeah. You talked about record companies throwing money at you and come a calling. So Warner Brothers came a calling and uh, the Atomic Playboys record. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I was I was really unprepared for. I was really, um, you know, I didn't. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you just uh, when you're when you're the head cheese, you're responsible for a lot of financial stuff that I really wasn't ready for. Yeah, I think I read somewhere you quoted as saying that was one hell of a really expensive hobby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I I quite enjoyed that record. I got it when it came out. I knew about Perry from his old band, Warrior. So I knew he was singing in the band. I knew about you. So I was excited when it came out. I picked it up. I enjoyed the record. I thought it was a good record. Yeah, I have no problem with the performances or you know of anybody on the record or the songs for that matter i like the songs i don't like the sound of the record to me there's no warmth and bottom end on it this was the beginning of digital recording and had i known then what i know now i would have done that record on analog what's interesting is that uh last year i went out to europe to do a solo tour with frankie perez the singer and i revisited some of the atomic playboys material and I got to tell you, it was an absolute blast, and the shit sounded great. And so I've kind of, you know, accepted the record for what it is, and and uh, you know, I am proud of it. I just wish it. I wish I had the opportunity to remix it now. <laughs> you know, so many people they remaster and remix things these days. That have ever considered doing that? The record was uh, bought by Cherry Red, and they've not asked me to remix it. So yeah. It would benefit from it. <laughs> How about picking a song off that record to play for us? Uh, Crackdown.
Awesome. That was Cracked Down. That's one that uh, you don't hear often. That's a nice, deep album cut. I like that song. Great song off that record. That would have made for a great Billy Idol song. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting you say that. Yeah, I guess I can kind of hear that a little bit. Yeah. It's cool. So how did you end up connecting with Vince Neil on the 93 Exposed record? Because I knew a little bit, but then when I started doing some research... I started finding all this stuff that I had, all this drama, I'll call it drama, but all this drama that I had no idea was going on with this record. Yeah, well, I was already signed to Warner Brothers, and um, and obviously I owed them a ton of money from Atomic Playboys. The record had never recouped. So uh, Ted Templeman called me, said they had signed Vince Neil. Was I interested in coming in working on the record? And they'd offset my... Uh, debt to them from you know cut a deal to do the record and I, I thought okay that's you know fair enough I had a blast doing that record it was the first time that I had ever worked with an artist and a producer who was Ron Nevison who had done the who and you know he's a great yeah. great great producer where uh, yeah where I was being asked to play you know heavier and more and extend the solos and you know I was used to the the school of, you know, Billy Idol, where things were very economical, you know, for good reason, you know, sure. but this was an entirely different kind of thing. And, um, I think some of my best guitar playing is actually on that record. And I had a blast doing the record. I really did. I really enjoyed it. So Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw did a bunch of writing on it. And then you stepped in and you had quite a bit of co-writes on it. And then I read where, the original band was like supposed to be like Adrian Vandenberg and a couple of other people, which I had no idea about. And then Phil Susan was in on bass, but said somewhere that he left because he was disagreeing with some of the direction that you were taking. Was that accurate or no? Well, I don't know anything about other guitar players. I mean, if they considered or even auditioned, so I wouldn't know that. Yeah. I'm not going to quantify anything that Phil Suzanne has to say. Okay. <laughs> I think my work speaks for itself. Okay, fair enough. But I, the, the one thing I will say is it wasn't my decision for him to leave the band. Okay. It was not my decision. So, And I've seen him since, and it's been cordial. And, you know, this this is all the ancient history, you know. So sure. I, 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 you know, I hate seeing stuff that, that people say negative about each other and you know, especially when it's 30 years later, and uh, I'm sure he's doing great. But I will say it was not my decision. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you want to pick a tune off this record to play? Oh, yeah. Can't have your cake and eat it too. Love this song.
Yeah, so I absolutely love that song. That's a great song. And to me, that song, and then there's another, not that it sounds like it, it's just a similar style song that's on the Atomic Playboys record where it's kind of like almost a little bit of a, it's rock, but there's almost sort of a big band type feel, you know, horns and things like that. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, when it came time for the Vince record, when we were, you know, they had had such massive success with uh dr feelgood yeah exactly and kickstart my heart was just brilliant right and we had a lot of mid-tempo songs and i I said to vince you you know you need a kickstart my heart so uh i kind of came up with can't have your cake it's another fast rocker billy idol's known for those kind of fast rockers that rebel yell etc and so that's how we came up with that and then um living is a luxury is probably the song you're talking about a kind of jazz infused thing and I, I remember saying to Vince you know there's no reason why you can't stretch out a little bit and, and do a bit of what David Lee Roth does is you know kind of traditional groovy you know kind of slightly jazz infused things and you know I mean it, you know artists that I work with they can always say no that's not my wheelhouse or whatever but when I presented him the demo he said yeah man this is cool let's do it so you know I always try and if I'm hired to work with somebody, it, it really is my job to kind of see how far they're willing to stretch their, you know, their catalog and, and song stylings. And, you know, there's no harm in trying, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But but I think with that song, it, it you know, the, a lot of people have told me they really dug it because it wasn't what they expected from Vince. Yeah, and I think that's uh, what's great about you as an artist and a guitar player, Steve, is that you venture off and you do some of these things like, uh, you know, you play a bit of sort of, uh, I don't know if I'd call it prog rock or not, but with uh, getting together with uh, Bazio and, and Levin. Uh, and you put out that record, and then you do your flamenco guitar record, and you venture into all these different areas, which is obviously outside of what you, I guess, what you would do on the norm or whatever your, right. if you want to call it your daytime job or whatever. <laughs> you yeah, do, yeah. you do these other things, and I think it brings a whole different. It brings a whole different angle to what you do when you're with the Vince Neils or the Billy Idols or the Sebastian Box or any of these people, right? Well, the, the you know as you know, I hate when people say as you know I'm an artist, but as playing guitar is my craft. If I don't expand it and I don't learn new stuff, then I'm just treading water, and and uh, and it gets boring to me. You know, it's I, I get restless if I'm just repeating myself or or doing the same thing. So obviously working with musicians outside of the rock genre keeps it fresh for me. It's as simple as that. Yeah. But you are an artist. You create. I mean, artists create, whether it's painting or whether it's music or whether it's playing guitar. It's. I mean, that's what you do. That is That is an artist. You're creating something and, and for better or for worse, it impacts people's lives the same as a painting impacts somebody's lives. I look at some of these great paintings and I'm like, really? Some dude got paid to do that (laughs) it looks like a it looks like a kid did that and then the same for music i hear things that i'm just like 
you know, really impact me in a special way. And then I hear other things and I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't get it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, that's that's artistry at its um, highest sense. And, and so uh, I appreciate that from you and from any artist, really. Yeah. I mean, hopefully if I'm, if I'm being successful as a, as a musician, uh, it's to bring some emotion to what I do. And uh, I I very rarely just try and play something or record something on the guitar. That's purely technical because that's not the point of it. You know, that's why, that's why I've worked with so many amazing singers and, and uh, partnered up with, with other people in that way, because that's really what I love doing. I love almost being a director and uh, creating something with somebody that's larger than, you know, the sum of the parts is, is really, it's so much fun. You know, at the end of the day, if you're just doing something entirely on your own or for your own, you know, Hey, maybe other guitar players are going to dig this, you know, right? there's no glory in that for me. You know, I, I've gone to shows of guitar players who were, up there wanking away and I'm bored as hell after one song, <laughs> you know, it's, this is not my thing, you know? Yeah. It's all about the songwriting, I think, which is, yeah, that's all. Or the, crea- or the creativity, you know, yeah. I mean, when, uh, when Jimmy Page takes a solo or Jeff Beck, you know, I'd say Jeff is one of the few guitar players for me that can play instrumental music that really moves you emotionally. I think a lot of guitar players really miss that point. You know, this, there's something deep in his soul about how he connects with the guitar and it's not technical. You never, I'm never thinking about holding up a scorecard after a Jeff Beck solo, you know, for Beck. I mean, you're talking about those, um, those identifying markers. So with Beck, it's, it's kind of the, a lot of the whammy bar stuff and the guitar almost seems like an extension of him and exactly. uh, And page the same thing. I mean, it's the same with you too, because you have some of these, I mean, I don't, I don't remember anybody else hearing, uh, do this, uh, Ray gun effect thing with the solo and, and all that stuff. I mean, that's all stuff that I've only heard from you and is very identifying of, of you, but it's not your only side. It's just something that I instantly hear and I'm like, okay, that's Steve Stevens. (laughs) Yeah. It's just me trying to replicate Keith Emerson. <laughs> you know, that's cool. So uh, have you ever been offered a gig that you had to turn down? You regretted it later? Uh, no, actually, yeah. no. That's great. Yeah, it's always, I think if something is meant to be, I'll do it. You know, it's yeah. never, I can't say I've ever turned something down and, and regretted it or anything. No, I think most, most of the things I've been offered, I've done. Or, you know, figured out a way to, to, to make them work. Yeah. Because I think people know enough about what I do to kind of pick, you know, the, it seems like the right people have offered me the right gigs. Yeah. Timing is everything. Uh, are there any current guitar players out there uh, today that you feel are a bit underrated? Guthrie Govan is, is at the forefront of, of being an amazing guitar player. Maybe some people don't know about him, but... He's toured with, he was chosen by Hans Zimmer for his orchestral tour. Uh, Hans Zimmer is going to pick the best of the best, so I think that's an indication. And So I really like like his guitar playing. He, he can play virtually anything, but doesn't, you know, is really just super, super tasteful, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as acoustic players, Tommy Emmanuel is just 
just incredible, you know, but he's been doing it a long time, but maybe he's not a household name or, or, or something like that, you know? Right. Um, there's a lot, you know, I love the guitar player in Muse. I think he's kind of extended, you know, taking the kind of guitar effects thing. I see a little bit of what I was hinting at in, in what he does. And I think that's really, you know, he, he's somebody I'll always listen to. Right. But once, once again, they're not, uh, you know, these guys have been doing it a while. Sure. I, I love the the fact that the, the little guy from Greta Van Fleet is, is channeling Jimmy Page. You know, I think that's so awesome. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, they're great live, too. I saw them not too long ago when they were just getting out there on the road, and they're really good live. They sound great. Yeah, I mean, that record is fantastic. I just I hope they find their own identity. You know, yeah. I hope it hasn't happened for them too soon. You know, I hope they're allowed to develop and, and really experiment. You know, I think they will. I really believe that they will because that record is just, it's so good sounding, man. And, you know, they have all the makings to really, really turn a lot of that generation on to classic rock. And that, that can only be a healthy thing. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. I interviewed uh, Sam, the bass player, and uh, I think they will. I think they're young and undeveloped and they will develop over the course of time so i'm 100 percent on your your side when you say you know hey that is healthy for rock and roll i agree exactly exactly and uh and uh that band the struts are really good i like them i think their lead singer is really charismatic in that you know early english rock way and uh yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're good writers. And so there's good stuff out there, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you've been awesome with your time. But before I let you get out of here, we do a little segment called Don't Think About It Too Much. Uh, <laughs> and this is sort of a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions you just uh, answer. Don't think about it too much. So song you wish you'd wrote. Wind Cries Mary. Artist you would love to make an album with. Peter Gabriel. Favorite song to play live? Rebel Yell. Uh, band or artist you want to see live in 2018? Oh, wow. Stephen Wilson. Name two Desert Island albums. Two albums you take to the Desert Island with you. Uh, Close to the Edge by Yes and uh, Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. Nice. <laughs> All right. Best concert you ever saw? Wow. That's a tough one. Wow. Best concert I ever saw. Oh, Prince at the Ritz before uh, before Purple Rain. He was on the Dirty Mind tour. Nice. We just did a Prince special. That's cool. Last album you purchased? The uh, box set just arrived today from Amazon. The reissue of Love's Forever Changes. Who is that? Love is a, there's even a documentary about them. Love was the Los Angeles kind of psychedelic band uh author lee was the leader of, of the band is probably one of the first rock black rock uh front men uh -huh. and um if you get a chance it's an orchestrated record it's mind-blowingly good i will say it's as good as pet sounds wow okay yeah, it's called forever changes it is an incredible record all right definitely checking that out so your grammy statue in your home displayed proudly or a paperweight <laughs> oh it's displayed proudly next to my creature of the black lagoon model there you go your favorite guitar yeah my most emotionally attached guitars when i got my first royalty check from billy idol i went to 
Chicago to get a 1976 Ramirez flamenco guitar. Ah. <clears throat> the reason I, it was so important to me was like in the middle of the Yes Fragile record, there's a photograph of Steve Howe with a Ramirez flamenco. and It doesn't even have tuning machines. It just has wood pegs on it. And the guys from Hamer Guitars knew somebody who imported them. They were out of Chicago. And I went to this warehouse and there was literally a hundred boxes, just cardboard boxes with these guitars. Some were in really bad shape, and we, they helped me pick one out. And uh, and now these guitars are super valuable. But it was my first guitar that really, it's what Steve Howe recorded Mood for a Day on, and it's still my most emotionally attached guitar. Awesome. The pedal or effects processor you can't live without. Well, I can live without all of them. So, I mean, uh, you never want to hide behind something. I mean, it's nice to have them, and uh, and I helped develop one with uh, with a company called J Rocket, which we introduced. It's called the Rockaway, and it's uh, it's super useful in the studio. It can do a myriad of different things, and and uh, it was something to me that was lacking in the market. So, I guess that pedal. Okay. I would have said the secret ray gun effect, but (laughs) (laughs) that's just me. So you've worked with and have probably met a million different celebrities, which is cool. But the celebrity you met that made the fanboy come out in you. Chris Squire from Yes. Really? Yeah, who became a friend of mine. So we actually recorded together and uh, he was everything I had hoped he would be because I was such a huge fan and he was a larger than life character. He had such history about him and, you know, had, you know, was there for Jimi Hendrix and all the great English stuff that happened in the early seventies, late sixties. And, uh, he was, for me, he still is my favorite bass player. And, and he really was a wonderful guy really was everything I had hoped he'd be. I had the opportunity to meet both uh, Chris Squire and John Anderson. I never met John, but Chris was really, really special guy, man. Awesome. Steve, that's it, man. You've done great. We're going to make sure that we tie your music and the Billy Idol tour dates to our show notes. What else do we want to promote for you, sir? Yeah, we're just, uh, you know, the rest for the rest of the year, I'm I'm out with Billy and then, um, uh, Frankie Perez and I are going to do a record together, a kind of classic rock record, and you know, hopefully conjure up the spirits of all those records that I was like burning grooves in, you know, when I was a teenager. Now, when you say classic rock, what is that definition for you? Are we talking seventies? Uh, yeah, I mean, all the early seventies rock records up until seventy-four. You cool. know, anything from sixty-nine to seventy-four. <laughs> awesome! I'll be interested to hear that. That's great. All right. Fantastic. Steve, you've been awesome. Just hang on the line here for a second and we're going to say goodbye to the listeners. We will talk to you folks next week. Get ready to shuffle, rattle and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.